pew Bibles, by the way, and all the furnishings, and we'll, we'll look deeper into it. Uh, but again, today we just want to uh, get a, an overview understanding of this tabernacle. And so if you'll uh, read it uh, together uh, in your Bibles there up on the screen, we see Exodus 25 verses 1 through 9 introduces this tabernacle. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they, that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive a contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant in, uh, incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and the, br the breast piece. Uh, verse 8, and then let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furnishing, all of its furniture, so you shall make it. That is God's word for us today. Let's, let's go to the Lord now, even in prayer. Father God, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to leave today with a better understanding of this tabernacle that you commanded Israel to construct. Help us to understand uh, first what it meant for them, but then help us to understand why it should matter even more for us. God, I pray you would do these things uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but without a doubt, one of the greatest themes in all of Scripture, in all the Bible, is that of the tabernacle. Now, it'll go in different names and, and different titles, but this theological thread of the tabernacle of God literally runs from the beginning of the Bible to the very end. But what we're picking up today in Exodus is going to help us understand this principle of the tabernacle very well. And so um, I'm, I'm very excited to begin this study. You know, we're just covering nine verses today. I, there will be so many chapters that go through different elements of this tabernacle to help us understand better what God was doing and what he was leading Israel to do. Um, but... This week, what I want to do, just using the, these first nine verses, and, and we'll have to move forward some uh, in Exodus as well, uh, I want us to understand what the tabernacle was. Like, what is this place? What, what purpose was it to serve at the most basic level uh, for Israel? And then again from there, I want us to move from, okay, that's what it was, and this is what it meant to Israel so what should that mean for us today? How should that make a difference in my life to know more about this tabernacle of God? And so, you know, we, we want to see today, what was it? That's where we'll begin. What was the tabernacle at its core? And th this is uh, the number one in your notes, if you'd like to follow along there. This is the most 
essential element of what the tabernacle was to be. Number one, the tabernacle was to be God's dwelling place with his people. God's dwelling place with his people. If you get nothing else today, that's what I hope you will understand because it will help you understand the rest of what happens in the book of Exodus. And again, it will help you all the way through the rest of the Bible to understand that the tabernacle, and it will later be the temple and, and so on, um, is God's dwelling place with his people. And we, we see that uh, especially uh, in verses 8 and 9 there of Exodus 25. God says there, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so that uh, so you shall make it. And so we have this tabernacle, and God says, here is the most basic purpose uh, of what this is supposed to do. Here is the most basic uh, definition of the tabernacle is God's dwelling place with his people. Make this that I may dwell in their midst. So you think about that, and this, this is really an amazing reality because God has, you know, chosen the people of Israel. God has redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. And, and God meets with them at, at Mount Sinai. That's what we've been seeing. And he, he gives them a law. He gives the, you know, the Ten Commandments as well as the law of Moses. And he goes in, comes into this covenant with them. We saw that last week, the covenant ceremony. And God met with them there uh, on Mount Sinai. But what we see here with the tabernacle is, is God basically saying, just redeeming you. Just making this covenant with you, just giving you this law, rules to follow, ways to conduct your life, is not enough for me. I want a continued relationship with you. That's what the tabernacle is ultimately saying. It is showing that God Almighty wants a relationship with his people. We'll even see uh, later in Exodus chapter 29, God says of the tabernacle, there I will meet with the people of Israel. Again, this is just the most basic purpose of what the tabernacle is. It is a way for God to do relationship with Israel and a way for Israel to do relationship with God. Albeit, I, I should say, much of that will happen through mediators, okay? It'll happen through Moses and it will happen through the priesthood, but it is very much an invitation from God to continue in a, a close, personal relationship with God. It was at the tabernacle that they could pray to God. It was at the tabernacle that they could tangibly worship God. And it was at the tabernacle that God would speak to them. Again, through, through mediators, but God would speak to them. And so they would be doing uh, this sort of relationship, being drawn closer to God, and that is what God desired to have happen. Uh, I, we should remember just the whole uh, tone of this text is, this isn't what Moses is suggesting to God. This is what God is commanding Moses to do. That the tabernacle, God dwelling among men, is God's idea. It is God's command. It is God's desire 
to dwell among his people. And, and what's amazing here is we don't want to, to miss this point. God isn't just some, some old grandpa in the sky that's lonely. That's not what's going on here. You have God Almighty, entirely self-sufficient, joyful, uh, just with himself amongst the Trinity. And yet he looks down upon his creation, his rebellious creation. He redeems them and then says, I want relationship with them. And, and this should blow our minds. There are some theological words uh, that I, I want to, to give you. Uh, the first one is this. You need to understand that God, by nature, is transcendent. He transcends all of creation. That is, God is uh, he's far above all things and utterly out of the reach of his creation. That is what God is by nature. But in the tabernacle, what we see is God choosing to be imminent. Imminent means, you know, nearby, accessible. God is choosing the transcendent, all-glorious God of the universe, self-sufficient, chooses to be imminent, to make himself nearby and accessible to the people of Israel. And now, what we're going to see here, though, is, is very interesting, is, is God... I mean, he just dives straight in. He sh he's making it so clear that he's making himself imminent, that he's making himself nearby and accessible. And I actually see this in the word tabernacle. Okay, the word tabernacle, we have there again, uh, verse tw 9. God says, is that exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, most of us, if we've grown up in church or if, you know, even if we came into it later in life, but we've spent some time as a Christian reading our Bibles and hearing sermons, we know about the tabernacle. Uh, we, we kind of have a picture in our head, maybe even. Uh, but we need to understand there, there was a meaning behind this word before it was used for the, the tabernacle of God. And so here's what this word tabernacle means, this thing that God is commanding them to make. Uh, it's actually a compound word, and it's a mixture of the Hebrew and Akkadian languages, okay? So it'd be like if we were to take an English word and then attach it with a Spanish word or something like that. That's what they did. And so you have the Hebrew word dwelling, so you have the word dwelling, and then the Akkadian word is tent. So God is actually telling them, make for me a tent dwelling, this is the imminence, the, the nearbyness, the, the accessibility of God. He doesn't say, build me some far off grand castle that I can dwell in. He says, no, you guys are in tents, right? Israel is out in the wilderness. They're going to spend another 40 plus years before they take possession of the promised land and actually have houses, brick and mortar houses. They're in tents, Right? And so here's what God says, to be imminent, to have relationship with you, I am going to dwell among you in a tent like you. This is the God of all glory, worthy of all honor, all praise. He, he is majestic beyond compare. And he says, to be with you, to relate with you, Israel, I'm going to live in a tent with you. 
Now, I want to be careful there. We need to keep in mind that transcendence of God. God does not uh, all of a sudden become so small that he can fit in the tent. The heavens cannot contain God. Do you understand? Like, God is everywhere. I can go uh, to, to the depths of the sea. I can go to the ends of the earth, Psalm 139, and behold, you are there. So it's not that God has squeezed himself down and put himself in this tabernacle. It is that he has put, he has chosen to put his focus, personal attention and presence in this tabernacle where he will dwell among the people, again, in a tent like his people. That is the most basic understanding of what the tabernacle is. It is a dwelling like the people where God will dwell with his people. Now, I want you to keep that idea that God goes into a tent like his people. Keep that in your back pocket, because we are going to come back to that a, a little later in our sermon here, in our study of, of God's word. But that's our, our most ba basic understanding. It, it's God dwelling amongst his people, inviting them to do relationship with him. But... but I want us to go a step further. I want us to go a step further, not only to, to what it is, but, but what the tabernacle does for them. And so this will be number two. If you're following along in your notes, it's not going to match what I put up here. So work with me. You can cross out words that aren't there. You can add an N after the A. Anyway, uh, I, I change things sometimes. So here is what the tabernacle was to be, what it was to accomplish the tabernacle was to be an instrument of God's influence amongst the people of Israel. The knowledge of God's presence amongst them in the tabernacle was meant to have a profound influence on the people of Israel, on the way that they thought and felt and conducted their lives. The tabernacle was to be an instrument of God's influence amongst them. And God means to, desires to accomplish some really amazing purposes, to influence them in some really amazing ways. And so I will just show you a couple of those ways. We will hit more of these as, as, uh, as we continue in the study over the, the coming weeks. Uh, but here are just a couple of the purposes, a couple of the ways God desires to influence the people of Israel by this tabernacle and his presence there. First, the tabernacle was meant to promote holiness. Holiness is a big churchy word too. I know I've used a lot of them today, but it just means godliness, living in a way that accords with, that aligns with God's commands and God's desires. And so God's presence in the tabernacle is meant to promote the holiness to encourage the holiness of the people of Israel. We'd, we'd have to do a much longer study than I can do today, but we, we see the seed of this idea uh, right there in verse 8. Again, it's just another word that we know in our minds, but we may not know what it means. Verse 8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Let them make me a sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? What's God saying? You know, we often think of uh, a sanctuary as being a refuge away from harm. I, I take sanctuary uh, in a place. 
But that's not the original meaning of, of the word sanctuary, and that's certainly not the way God means it, like I'm going to hide uh, in this tent so that I'll be protected from some sort of harm. Obviously, that is not the way God means the word sanctuary. And so what does this word sanctuary mean? Well, I want you to think about this. Again, those of you who, who know all these churchy words, sanctuary is the noun form of the verb sanctify. So you have sanctify or sanctification, right? Uh, I, I need to be sanctified or sanctify that thing. That means to make holy. That, that's what it means to sanctify, to, to cleanse, to remove all impurities and defilement. That is what it is to sanctify. And so when we think about uh, what a sanctuary is, it is a holy place. It is a place that has been set apart and cleansed and purified of all sin and defilement. This is what God is telling them to make. I mean, again, I, I'm, I don't love the English language. I so appreciate Hebrew and Greek uh, because this word, like in sanctify, is that word holy. Like just anyways, uh, it's it, like in their language, it would be holy place. It's dwelling and holy put together. Um, and so it just, it's so difficult for us to grasp oftentimes what these uh, words are really trying to say. But this is what God is saying to them explicitly in their language. Make for me a holy place that I may dwell among them. And it makes sense, right? God, who is choosing to dwell among them, is a holy God. Therefore, God needs to dwell in a holy place, a place free from defilement and sin. And as we continue through these chapters, what we'll see is God... <coughs> God is very serious about this being a sanctuary, about this being a holy place. Like, it is no joke. Many times it says, if these purifying, sanctifying actions are not done, you will die. Like, the priest who goes into the, 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 the tabernacle without first being purified, and they would have washings, and we'll, we'll get into all of this, without going through a sanctification process, uh, uh, being made holy, they would die. And so that's what we'll see, is the whole tabernacle itself will be sanctified. It will be made holy. Uh, all of the furnishings, the, the ark, the lampstand, the table, all, all these different things, they will be sanctified. All of the priests who enter into it will be sanctified. They will be purified. They will be made holy. Clearly, God's house demands holiness. Clearly, any interaction with God demands holiness. And this is how the tabernacle was to have a purifying influence on the people of Israel. They were to recognize, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that a holy God was dwelling in their midst. And they were to be motivated by that reality to pursue holiness and godliness in their own lives. God would make it so abundantly clear that he is holy, that to approach him, one must be holy. And so they were to pursue holiness. Yes, I will say this. God had already made them holy positionally. He had already set them apart. They were already his chosen people but God will still call them 
over and over again to be holy. Not just positionally, but practically holy. This would happen and be motivated, influenced by God's presence at the tabernacle. It was to promote this pursuit of holiness. So that, that's one purpose that we will see uh, for, for uh, the tabernacle. And remember, God says, I will make you a holy people. Like this is a big part of God's plan for Israel. Is he doesn't just redeem them. He wants to change them, to change how they think, that, how they act. God wants to make them holy through his presence in the tabernacle among them. But there is another major category uh, that, that God wants to influence through his presence at the tabernacle, and that is this. The tabernacle was meant to promote courage. To promote courage, that is confidence, boldness to do what God commands them to do, even the hard things, even the scary things. They could go and do it with courage. I, I, I don't, <coughs> excuse me. Can you get a drink of water? <clears throat> I don't want to spend uh, too long on this point because it's very similar to the holiness aspect of it's because of God's presence that, that the courage was possible. Uh, but, but basically what we'll see here is that God is going to command them to do some very difficult things. They, they don't have an easy road ahead of them. So they're, they're going to face enemies in the wilderness, but they know without a doubt that they will be facing enemies when they go to take the promised land. They know that they will be facing some very strong enemies. In fact, at one point, eh, I shouldn't go there, but I will. At one point, they go in to spy out the land, and they come out and say, we can't take the land. We can't do it. That's how powerful the, the, the Canaanites would be, the people in the promised land would be but here's the idea is god wasn't just sending them in and commanding them to go take the promised land on their own god wasn't saying use your power use your might use your skills use your abilities use your numbers and that will give you success that will help you to accomplish what i command that is not what god is doing we actually saw this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 23 God had said this about the, the pr promised conquest, 23 verse 20. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Uh, he says again, um, verse 22, If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Uh, when my angel goes before you and brings you to these people, I will blot them out. I mean, he just goes on and says, I am going to be your presence there. This angel, I will send a terror before them, he says. I will send um, hornets before you and drive these people out. You will not go alone. And so what we have here, though, is God's promising this angel, but we don't get the idea from Exodus or from uh, especially Joshua where they begin the invasion. You will see the, the angel appear at one point, but in general, that this angel that God's sending ahead, his presence, his, uh, what would you say, his military might <laughs> won't, won't be present in that angel very often. But his presence will always be there in the tabernacle. It is to remind them that they do not go into battle alone. Um, I thought I had this. Do I have that? 
Yep, I do there. Uh, in, in Exodus 40, verse 38, this is how the end, uh, how, how Exodus will end. Uh, God's glory will come upon this tabernacle, and it says this, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so that tabernacle was to be a continual reminder to them that God Almighty is in our midst. If God commands us to do something, we won't be doing it by our own might. We will be doing it by his. He is with us. He is for us. And that's exactly what's going on here. And so if Israel had truly understood this, truly apprehended and appreciated this reality, they would have been bold as lions. When, when the spies went in, they would have all come out like Caleb and Joshua saying, they're huge, but we can do this. Because they would have recognized God is with us through his presence at the tabernacle. This is what the tabernacle was to accomplish. Not all it was to accomplish, but these are some of the main things. It was to promote relationship with God. I am imminent, utterly above all, out of reach. Sorry, I'm transcendent, <laughs> utterly above all, out of reach. But I am choosing to be imminent to you, to be within your reach, to be able to do relationship with you. Not only that, I'm showing you my holiness, a continual reminder of the holy God who dwells in your midst. Therefore, you too pursue holiness. And I'm going to command you to do some hard and scary things, but know that I am with you. This is what the tabernacle, the influence it was to have on Israel. That's what it meant for them. God is dwelling among us. And it's to have an influence on our lives. So, so far I've given you the, the historical background, the biblical uh, Old Testament background of uh, when God is commanding this and what he wants to accomplish through it, at least in part. God's presence to influence them, to promote relationship. But, but I want to ask you now, you know, so what are we supposed to do with it? What are we supposed to think about this, this tabernacle? You know, I mean, how, how are we supposed to, like, apply this and, and, and let it make a difference in our lives? We don't have a tabernacle. We, we don't have a tent. We, we don't even have a brick-and-mortar temple like Israel where God's presence resides. Does that mean Christians can't have a, a relationship with God, an intimate personal relationship with God? Does that mean that we have no motivation to pursue holiness or to have courage because we know God's presence is there? So he, here's the next development in this sermon. I want to make sure we understand of this doctrine of the tabernacle. And this is number three. I, I hope so badly that you get this. I won't be able to spend real long here. God still dwells with his people today right here right now all through the world god still dwells with his people now i hope some of you're thinking that's not exactly accurate is it because god not only dwells with his people he dwells 
in his people. Yes, all right, you guys are paying attention. I love it. Uh, we're, we're not going to get there yet. I want to take us a, a little bit more through what happens here with the tabernacle. As I mentioned uh, many times throughout this series, Israel will not realize, they will not experience God's ideal. God, God lays it out for them. He puts his presence amongst them in this tabernacle. It should create a desire for relationship. It should create a desire for, for practical holiness. It should create a desire for courage. But Israel will, will have a very tenuous relationship with God and even with God's presence in, in, in the tabernacle. Uh, and again, when they enter the promised land after, after a while, uh, under Solomon, King Solomon builds a temple and God's presence moves there from the tabernacle. But what eventually happens in Israel's history is God's presence departs from the temple, what used to be the tabernacle. God, God's presence departs. We see that in Ezekiel, uh, the presence of God departs. And, and so Israel was in a, a dark period for hundreds of years after this. Okay, so that's the movement. At this point, God says, build me a dwelling place. They build it. God does indwell that place. Then they build the temple. God indwells that place. But then they rebel and God departs. And it was dark. But then we come to the New Testament and we read these amazing words. These are the, the opening words of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a lot there, but it's, it's not too hard to understand. You say, okay, in the beginning was the word. Who's that? Well, he tells you in verse 14, the son from the father. This is the son. This is the word. He was with God. He was God. So God the son. Then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what happened that first Christmas. Do you understand this tabernacle idea? God in the Old Testament <coughs> wanted to dwell among his people, so he had them make a tent for him, and God dwelt in a tent like his people. But here's what happened in Jesus, in God the Son. He took on a bodily tent like his people. His people were in flesh and blood, so he became flesh and blood. He remained God, but it was God dwelling in a human body, took on human nature just like his people. That was God's desire to relate with his people. God becomes man to dwell among us, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ, that we talk so much about by the way, we can make these connections. Jesus says, uh, you, you will tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days. 
And the people say, how are you going to rebuild this temple? It took all these years to build. And John, uh, this is, uh, John, I can't remember what chapter that is now. Anyways, um, John says, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus makes it explicit that he is the dwelling place of God. He is the temple. He is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was pointing to Jesus. He is the greater tabernacle. But then we come to another movement, another theological movement uh, concerning this, this tabernacle. Jesus, the dwelling place, the dwelling man of God, grows up. He shows, by the way, many times that he is God. He calms the waves. He, he casts out demons. He heals the sick. He does all these things. But then Jesus, the God-man, offers up his body as a sacrifice to bear and to cover the sins of mankind. He dwells among his people, but then he dies for his people, taking their sins upon himself. And again, you can tie this back to the tabernacle, the sacrifice, right? You, you have the altar. Jesus puts himself on the altar as the ultimate sacrifice. His blood is shed rather than the blood of animals. We're not going to go there yet. But then on the third day, Jesus does rise from the grave. The temple, he rebuilds like he said he would. So Jesus truly, in bodily form, God the Son rises from the dead. He's in a resurrected body. So the temple, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, once again, Jesus is there. But then, maybe to our surprise, I don't know, 40 days later, the God-man, the dwelling place of God, the dwelling person of God, ascends back to heaven to sit at the right hand of his Father. You can read about that in uh, Mark and Luke and Acts. We'll all tell of the ascension of the resurrected God-man, Jesus. And so we say, wait, wait, wait. I thought we needed the, the God to dwell among us. I thought God wanted to do relationship with us. Well, Jesus left, but he left with an amazing promise. Make sure I've got the right thing. Yep. He left with an amazing promise. John 14, 16 to 20. This is just one of many, by the way. But um, Jesus says this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give, he's telling them about him leaving. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. I think I didn't put that up there. But you will see me. You'll know I'm present because I live. You also will live. Verse 20 in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is what Jesus says. He, this is what he promises them is going to happen. I am going to depart in a little while, but I'm going to ask the Father. And he's going to send another helper, even the Spirit of truth. He, he dwells with you, but he will be in you. He will dwell in you. And Jesus says there again, I will come to you. The Holy Spirit, in the form of the Holy Spirit, I will come to you. I will be in you. And that is exactly what happened. Again, I don't have too much time, but 
on the day of Pentecost, God sends his Holy Spirit to indwell, to take up residence in all those who put their trust in Jesus. All of them receive this promised Holy Spirit. And that is true for all Christians today. Israel had the tabernacle of God, a tent over there. It was among them, but it was over there where God's presence dwelled. We have God dwelling in us. We have God dwelling in us. Again, don't, don't forget these things. This is the transcendent God over and above all of his creation, entirely out of reach. Yet he has chosen to be imminent. And with us in this age of redemption history, it is in the most intimate and near of forms. He dwells in our hearts. I mean, this isn't just like neat Christian lingo. God really dwells in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. His presence is there continually if you are a Christian. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus, he has sealed you with his promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so now we got to do some work. Let me ask you, from what we've learned about the tabernacle today, what difference should it make in your life and in mine that we are now the dwelling place of God? From, from what we know about the tabernacle, how should it change the way that we relate to God? How, how should it motivate our pursuit of holiness? And how should it inspire confidence to obey all of God's commands, even the hard ones and the scary ones? What difference should the indwelling Holy Spirit make in light of what we understand about the tabernacle? Well, we, we could uh, look at all these many different ways, but we'll just look at it in the same order. We, we looked at the tabernacle. For relationship, we see Ephesians 2.18, just one of many verses. Uh, Paul says, for through him we both, that's Jew and Gentile Christians, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's just a blanket statement. Through this one spirit that we all possess that indwells us, we have access to the Father. This is constant and continual access to do relationship with God. And I think this is so important because some people have this thought of, I really need to reconnect with God, so I'm going to go to church. Please go to church. It is a good thing. It is a healthy, helpful thing. But you don't have to wait until Sunday to connect with God. He is in you. He is right there. You have access to him through the Holy Spirit always. So it doesn't matter if you're in a church service or if you're at home serving your family. It, it does not matter where you are. God is ready and willing and waiting to do and engage in relationship with you. And I, I just want to mention, you know, practical ways. Christian, when you read the Bible or, or meditate on, on passages that you've memorized, 
you can know because the Holy Spirit indwells you that the Holy Spirit is speaking those words into your heart and mind. It is God. Like you're, you're doing actual relationship with God when you read, when you think about, when you, you know, study, when you memorize. You are doing actual relationship with God because the Holy Spirit is making them more than words. It's words from a person, from God. I would say also, when you pray to make a request, to cast your cares upon God, to offer up a praise of worship to God, you can know that day or night, in the middle of work, crying babies, or the silence of, of, of an empty room, that God is always listening. He is attentive to your cry. He is hearing your words of worship, and he is bearing the burdens you roll upon him. God is there. You are doing actual relationship with him when you pray to him, because he is right they're in you. I, I could give many more, again, um, examples of this, but God dwelling in you, just like with Israel, is a constant and continual invitation far greater than that of Israel to do relationship with God. Like, like never before, we have the opportunity to experience a relationship with God and, and so that's the reality, that's the doctrine of the tabernacle, that's the doctrine of, of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, but what are you doing with it? Are you engaging in relationship with God? Are you giving Him time and attention? Are you connecting with Him as often as you can with the God of the universe who wants to know you and you Him? Okay, so that's relationship. Let's look at the next phase, holiness. The presence of God, the, the knowledge that God Almighty is in us, should cause us to pursue actual, practical holiness in our lives. Now, I want, I want to say this. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus, He alone has made you clean before God. He has given you His record of righteousness before God. You are positionally as holy as you ever will be if you have trusted in Jesus. But because God indwells you, it should be a great motivator to pursue actual holiness in your own life. We see this uh, many times, but 1 Corinthians 6, 18 uh, to 19, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Again, temple and tabernacle, interchangeable in the way that we're thinking of it. Do you not know that your body is the dwelling place of God? And I mean, th this uses uh, sexual immorality because that is the specific situation Paul was dealing with there in 1 Corinthians 6, you could look at it uh, to see in context, he, he's, he's rebuking them for their sexual immorality. And so it, it just so happens that, that sexual immorality is what he's talking about, but you can apply this to any sin in your life. Do you not know that God dwells in you? Shouldn't that make you think twice about gossiping? 
Shouldn't that make you ashamed of being greedy or stingy? Shouldn't that stop you from pouring out sinful anger on people when they rub you the wrong way? God is dwelling in you. Don't you know that? The holy God of the universe is living in you. Therefore, don't you want to pursue holiness with your life? There are many motivators in the Bible for for why we should pursue holiness. But, But the indwelling Holy Spirit, God's presence within us, is a massive motivator. Because it it will, by the way, hinder your relationship with God if you aren't pursuing actual holiness in your life. Again, the the, the priests could not enter the tabernacle unless they they purified themselves. It doesn't mean they didn't have failings, but they had had to go through a purification process of atonement, asking forgiveness, and and that's what we do. We pursue actual practical holiness so that we can do relationship with this God who dwells in us. I, I, by the way, am hesitant I don't know if I should be or not to just be like, God's watching you. He knows when you're sleeping. It's like Santa Claus, you know, like, better watch out. You know, I, I'm hesitant, but I mean, that is the reality. God, God is right there watching you, listening to you, reading your thoughts. Anyways, it should be a great motivator for holiness. But finally, just like with Israel, God dwelling in you should be a great encouragement to be courageous, I guess you could say. It should cause you to have courage to obey the commands of God, even when they are tough, even when they're scary, even when you don't feel like you can do it. I mean, I, just example, God, God commands us to show supernatural levels of love. And I mean that supernatural levels of love, because God doesn't say, love those who are lovely. God doesn't say love those who love you back. He says love your enemies and everyone in between. That is how we are supposed to be. And we say, ah, I don't know about that one. Like, I kind of don't feel like treating this person with love. I, I don't think I could even if I tried. Or, or maybe you could think about uh, evangelism. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations is what Jesus commanded. It's the great commission. And we say, that's cool, but that's not my personality type. Or I haven't had enough training yet. Or, or I'm not very eloquent. I'm not good with words, you know. Let me just tell you, this doctrine of the tabernacle and how it has now become God dwelling in us should give all of us incredible courage to live with supernatural love and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as two examples of, of ones that I think people often find difficult. And and I think we should be courageous and confident in this, not because you or I are so great and so loving. So again, the the love thing, we see Romans 5.5, where does this power come from to do supernatural love? Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I believe that each and every one of us are able to supernaturally love our best friends and our worst enemies. Why? Because God's Holy Spirit dwells within us and he has poured his love into us. The power for love is there. All we have to do is is just access it, to act on it. 
God is ready to empower us to do what we could not otherwise do. That's the power of his presence. But you think again of evangelism. I think everyone knows where I'm going. <laughs> He's been here long. It's just one of my favorite verses because I live by this stuff. I, I truly, like, so much of my life runs off of these promises. Acts 1.8, Jesus, again, told his disciples this before he ascended. Here was another promise. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's going to send his Holy Spirit to indwell believers. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How does the Great Commission end? Anyone? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the promise of Jesus. Like, I'm not just telling you go therefore and make disciples. Go make spiritually dead people alive. Go make haters of God, lovers and worshipers of God. All right, Jeff, go do it. No, I will be with you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. God does not say, if you're eloquent, then I can use you. If you're the bold type, then I can use you. If, if, if you have had you know, evangelistic, seminary, whatever training, then I can use you. No, he says, if you have the Spirit, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit and you will receive power and you can do these things. And so it won't be your skills, ability, power, or might that does these things. It will be God's. And that's the importance of this doctrine of the tabernacle is that God is with us. He is in us, enabling us to do what we otherwise could not do. The chief of those is to have a relationship with the God of the universe. <laughs> but the God of the universe has chosen to dwell in us. And the God of the universe has chosen to, to continually and, and, and just step by step sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us a sanctuary for God, a holy place for God to dwell. Again, that has, happens positionally in Christ, but because we have the Holy Spirit, it happens practically over time, and we must pursue that and then those commands we're afraid to obey god doesn't send us alone we don't have to look at the giants in our life that's that's what uh the spies who went in the, into the promised land said they're giants in the land we can't do it but joshua and caleb say yeah they're giants i get it but we've got god let's go do this that is how we should see these commands to to go over to our neighbor's house to, to begin building relationships, to share the gospel with people, co-workers, family members. It is God going with us. Yes, there, there are giant obstacles in the way, but we have a far more giant God dwelling inside of us. This is the reality. I, I don't want to miss this. That I've, I've taught you, I've shown you from God's word the reality. The tabernacle in the Old Testament that becomes the temple. But then in the New Testament... We have Jesus dwells among us, but then when Jesus leaves, he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And so that's the reality, but the question is, what are you going to do with it? Israel, over and over, forsook the presence and power and relationship and holiness and courage they could have in God. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to act like he's there you're going to pray to him? You're going to read the word like he's really speaking to you? You're going to relate to him? 
Are you going to let him make you holy? Say, God, I, I struggle with these, these sins, these ruts of sin, but you can make me holy. You can pull me out of it because you're a holy God living within me. And God, those commands that I've been nervous to do, I've been, I've been just ignoring them all of my Christian life, but now I see you've called me to love supernaturally, to share the gospel, to, to do all these things, to live generously, sacrificially. I didn't think I could do it. But I see now that you're in me. And I'm going to trust your power. I'm going to trust your presence to do what I otherwise could not. What are, what are you going to do? How are you going to treat this truth, this word from God today? Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for this wondrous reality that you have uh, put before us here in just these few short verses. That you, the God of all glory, honor, and power, above all, utterly out of reach, have chosen to come near. That you've chosen to make yourself accessible through your Son, through faith in Him. That we can now have your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so God, would you help us to just always remember that you are there. God, to, to talk to you like you're really there. In the busyness, in the quiet, to act like you're there, to worship you like you're there. And God, we struggle with sin. We allow sin to linger in our lives for far too long. But God, we want to recognize your presence in us today. And let that motivate us, God, to pursue holiness. Your presence makes sin unthinkable. And your presence makes forsaking sin possible. God, lay it on our hearts now, those sins we need to turn away from by your power. God, make us a, a fitting sanctuary for you. And God, would you give us the courage to do those things we really cannot do without you. To love and serve and give of ourselves supernaturally in radical ways. And to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we would have the, the hope that it would be your power unto salvation for that other person. To go in with a, a strange confidence, not in ourselves, but in you and your ability to work through us. And to work these things out of us. Oh Lord, would you do these things today for your glory, for our joy in the good of all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.